Do you remember the first time you heard this? You're listening to Days of the New, Episode 3. Are you ready? Welcome back to Days of the New. Today we're talking about an album that we all have listened to. And if you haven't listened to it, you're listening to the wrong podcast, brother. If there is a face on the Mount Everest, the Mount itself is made of this album. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if it were faces, there's two. It's not just Jonathan Davis, and we'll get into that. Um, this album is, you've probably figured it out by now, we're talking about Corn by Corn. Uh, this yeah. is our first milestone album. We're going to discuss all kinds of new metal related things on this show, but every few episodes we're going to talk about one of the monsters of the genre and the absolute milestone uh, albums. I don't care if you're into new metal or if you know you were born well after that ship had sailed. This is an album whose influence and impact continues to be felt today. Hey, well, really quick, before we get dive too big, I just want to I just want to say something. We're going to start today's episode with an explicit language warning. Uh, it's pretty obvious, but you cannot discuss this album without getting into some pretty offensive language. So if you have a kid in the car, you're like listening on speakers at work, you might want to save this one for later. When you hear that phrase, it was a different time. It truly, truly was. Does it excuse it? But it's for a frame of reference. Cool. Uh, well, let's dive into corn. So uh, I think we're all familiar with the story, but we're going to break it down l- briefly. So corn was formed in Bakersfield, California, sometime in 1992, when members of two bands, LAPD and Sex Art, combined. Great names. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> L- LAPD stood for Love and Peace, dude. <laughs> oh God. They were a funk band. Corn really. Well, Jonathan Davis still describes corn as a funk band. He does not call them a metal band. Their first album ushered in the very genre for which our show is named and the genre is named. This album was released on October 11th, 1994. It sold over 10 million copies globally. Uh, and it was produced by the other uh, face of Mount Everest, uh, Ross Robinson, who is known as the godfather of new metal. His only production credit before this album was uh, a Fear Factory album. That's wild. But uh, yeah, he went on to do iconic albums with Sepultura, Deftones, Machine Head, Slipknot, Limp Bizkit. Then he moved into post-hardcore and did At the Drive-In, Glassjaw, Blood Brothers. He even did a Cure record. So uh, this is where it all started for, uh, for him as well. One of the unique things about the recording process of this album is that it was recorded live. So most albums are pieced together. Drums go first to a click track, and then all the other instruments are layered in with vocals at the end. There's a tremendous energy captured in this record because the band is feeding off of each other live just like they would if they were on a stage. Drummer David Silveria actually, he drums along to the vocals. So he listens to Jonathan's vocal cues and he'll add stuff. And we'll get into why a little bit later. But the album absolutely captures what the band sounded like on stage. And so many new metal albums were built in the studio and the band had to go home and learn how to play them. Like, if we ever talk about Crazy Town, oh, those guys didn't even really know how to play their instruments. That was all put together by studio guys, and they had to go home and learn how to play the part. Yeah, they're essentially a cover band. Yeah, so this record was it was put together and developed 
way before they went into the studio and they were just able to go in there and knock it out. So the first time I heard about corn was my freshman year of high school. Uh, my buddy Jared kept singing, I could see, I could see you going blind. <laughs> and finally I had to be like, dude, what are you singing? And he told me about corn. And uh, so I got the first CD and I had never heard anything like it. I remember shortly thereafter, we took a family road trip to Texas to visit my mom's sister. And the whole drive from Chicago to Texas, I laid on the bench seat in the minivan only listening to this album and OK Computer over and over again. Those two records are very far apart from each other. But you know what? I feel like that actually does a perfect job of summing up the dichotomy of that is you. Yeah, probably. That is us. I discovered this album. There was a guy in my eighth grade class who always wore a corn shirt. And I just recall looking at that shirt and going, that is the stupidest band name I've ever ever heard in my entire life. Okay, corn, which you eat and is spelled wrong, this can't be good. So I left it alone. My freshman year of high school, I moved to North Carolina. Imagine a movie where the rednecks pick on the goth kid and like how bad that is. That was my life, except real. And there was one other kid who wore like a black trench coat and he goes oh you're new here you listen to corn and i was like no and he's like no you listen to corn now and gave me a tape of corn <laughs> i was like oh okay this is my life now that's fantastic yeah i mean i, I had a corn poster as the center of my new metal poster wall of posters ripped out of guitar world magazine but i had i had the big spencer's gift corn ones where they were posing on like the lowrider bicycles <laughs> have you ever seen corn i have I have. I saw Corn on the Life is Peachy tour that same year that I got way into Corn because I got really bullied. It was Corn as their supporting acts. They brought out The Far Side and The Urge, if you remember them. And to this day, it was probably one of the coolest shows I've ever seen. How big was the venue? I would say maybe 1,100 people. Oh, damn. So I saw Corn on the um, Follow the, or the, I'm sorry, yeah, Follow the Leader tour. I never went to a Family Values, but it was full-blown arena. It was Videodrome, and then Rob Zombie, and then Corn. And Rob Zombie, like, it blew my mind, because like, he had like giant robots walking across the stage shooting fire. Corn had like um, like a prison set, like jail cells, and like fans that won the radio contest got to like be in the cells then like watch the show from the stage behind the bars. I, I was not one of those. Um, that probably sounded like shit. Uh, yeah, well, video drum, you could only hear the snare drum and the singer. Yeah, I mean, it, it is what it was. It was, I mean, at that time, uh, if you lived in the suburbs and you wanted to see a band this big, you had to see an arena show. Like, I, I missed the days when, like, they were coming through smaller venues in Chicago, so. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's talk about the album art a little bit. Right off the bat, you know that it's going to be disturbing. Just by looking at this album, you know that the album's going to be weird. There's a little girl in like a Catholic schoolgirl outfit on a swing in a swing set. And by a little girl, I mean like five, maybe. Yeah. And there's a shadow of a, of a grown-up standing in front of her holding something in his hand. You don't know what it is. Yeah, it's Slenderman. Yeah, it, it, it is. is. It does look like Slenderman. Um, but uh, fun fact, though, do you know who that little girl is? No. She was the A&R guy that signed Corn to their uh, deal, Paul Pontius. It's his niece. And, yeah. and, and, and Paul Pontius today is the executive vice president of A&R for Epic Records. Because when you are the guy that discovers one of the biggest selling acts in the last 20 years, you make VP. Other fun fact, that girl from the Corn album and the Nirvana baby actually grew up, got married. 
No, it's not true. (laughs) So full of shit. Uh, Although, in researching this album, it really occurred to me in such a weird fashion that this album came out six months after Kurt Cobain died. Oh, wow. So when you think about the sound of Seattle and grunge and what was heavy music for that time, because grunge killed uh, hair metal. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then grunge flew too close to the sun. The voice and face died. Six months later, this album is released. And it feels like a lifetime between the two. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, New metal got popular around the same time as like school shootings, and I'm not sure if that's coincidental, um, but it definitely <laughs> marked a moment in time. No, right? it totally did. Sorry. Let's get into the album because some of these songs uh, we're going to talk about at length. So we're going to start with Blind, right? So this is quite literally the first new metal song that most of us probably heard, unless you got into the genre a little bit later. It starts with that ominous ride symbol. You know, and like you're sitting there, you're like, what's going to happen? And then the ugliest guitar you've ever heard, like that dissonant, almost out of tune chord. Yeah. And then you hear a bass played at a register lower than I've ever heard a bass. Doom, doom, doom. And then there's that 808 hit. Doom. You know, like it's crazy. And out of nowhere, here comes Jonathan Davis and he announces that they're here and they are, they are the new face of music. Are you ready? Bam! (laughs) It just drops in like the dumbest one finger guitar lick, but you're like flipping your desk over and raging around your bedroom. Like, it was, it just slammed into this groove that you, oh man. It's that, that are you ready is the war cry that would launch a thousand shitty bands. (laughs) Right there. It, but, but you're right, dude. You can't not get hyped. In going back and revisiting this album, I probably hadn't listened to Blind in, I don't know, like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it is just so, f- you, like, you just get so amped. Well, there's this, this. well, I'll get into a little of this in, in another song. Um, but so once Jonathan comes in with the verse vocal, he immediately establishes the first new metal trope. The lyric starts with, this place inside my mind. Rule number one, sing about your brain and how it's broke. Yep. So the vocal is like a little gothy and scary and and different. It's really well done. It doesn't sound like a guy trying to do a scary voice. It just sounds like a scary dude. Yeah. And the thing is, in reading all of these interviews with Jonathan Davis, he is and has always stuck by the fact that he is kind of a goth kid, kind of a new wave kid. He was way more into Depeche Mode and yeah, Duran Duran is his favorite band. Yeah, so that in an, in and of itself kind of lends this idea of uh, you know a darker, spooky, more kind of uh, reflective type vibe. Whereas the rest of the band just look like meatheads. Oh, absolutely. And like, so in the 90s, um, like the Pixies and Nirvana, they figured out like if you wanted to write a banger, it went quiet, loud, quiet, loud, right? And like this corn very much does that. Mm -hmm. When they go loud, they go real loud, but they go quiet and let Jonathan be all spooky and the guitars are hardly doing anything. But you know it's coming, right? So one thing that we're going to talk about over and over again on this episode is... the bridges of all of these songs it's not the verses or the choruses that that are what kicks the door down it's always the bridge so the bridge in this song comes in early and it's just it's ferocious and he actually sings the lyric self-esteem is low in in the in the bridge right 
So that's new. Heavy music in the 80s was not about vulnerability, right? No, no. Um, I mean, heavy music was hard to even come by. Like, you had Slayer and stuff, but you talk about the big four, right? Your Anthrax, Slayer, Metallica, and Megadeth. All of those bands, to an extent, are cheesy. You know, like, you never feel like this is really heavy and really dark and vulnerable. And new metal brought that in, and and this song brought that in. Yeah, and what I find just really interesting about the whole idea of uh, vulnerability within that is that it almost instantly gets replaced. It's it's it, it, that emotional vulnerability serves as a backdoor for a lot of just meatheads to come in and ruin the party. Oh, a totally. lot like in high school. Uh huh. And then the other thing I was thinking about was that when this was recorded, these guys were like 23, 24 years old. They're creating a new genre. They're creating a new style of of how to play music. But lyrically, they're still 23 and 24. And the reason that it resonates so much with a 14 to 20 year old is you might not have the vocabulary or the kind of presence of mind to truly deal with what you're thinking and feeling. So it's my brain and the pain is insane mm-hmm. and I'm yeah. twisted up inside. And you're just like, fucking, they get it. Yeah. They get it. Yeah, they, there's a lot of talk about like bad self-esteem and being isolated and being alone. And like, I had the same experience as you, whereas, you know, I was, I, I went to the jock high school that like won state champs in football and wrestling every year. And I was like, the kid like scribbling smashing pumpkins lyrics in a notebook dressed mm-hmm. in black you know and i'll get into that as we get into like some more songs that reflect that so in this song jonathan davis is straight up telling the listener that he's not cool like this is a rock star so he's supposed to be cool but he's telling you that he's tormented he hates himself and he's literally afraid that it will be the death of him mm. it's not something you ever heard if you heard it it was in almost a concept album manner like with nine Inch Nails' downward spiral yeah. you never you never talked about yourself you never talked about what you were what you were feeling. You had to write it through the terms of a character. So for somebody to actually say, I am a deeply, deeply flawed human being and do it in a way that felt empowering was uh, it was something else. So as he ends the song and he's repeatedly yelling, I'm blind, I'm blind, I'm blind. He's letting it all out there. And even in the video, like you can see it. So as the song ends, it dips into this little outro where Fieldy's walking the bass a little bit and they're making like turntable noises with the guitars and it gets kind of silly. And you're like, after this intense moment of like soul crushing heaviness, what is this little silly bit? And I never really realized, I think a lot of it comes back to them recording it live. And I think that was maybe improvised because I don't know if they do that live, but in the video, at the end, when it goes into that little walking bass lift, Jonathan Davis is in the fetal position, like rocking back and forth on the floor. Like he is absolutely spent. And the rest of the band's like, there goes Jonathan. And then they just play along. <laughs> yeah. And they actually, there is a lot of improvisation that makes its way in here. I'm specifically thinking of, and we'll get down, uh, we'll get to this later, but Clown. Oh, big time. Yeah. So they got a little attention after their video was aired on an episode of Beavis and Butthead. They got about a minute of Beavis and Butthead saying, wait, this could be kind of cool. And uh, that was that was early. If you think about when Beavis and Butthead is on, I don't associate them with Corn at all. I see those a couple years apart. But again, I didn't get into it for over a year after the album was out. But it's your standard uh, live concert video. It's a lot better than the Godsmack one we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, what I did think was funny in the first second 
of the music video, you get a close-up of an eyebrow ring, and well, that just makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, Jonathan Davis eventually became kind of a cartoon character when fame and money and everything kicked in, but like in this video, you can see like the honesty in this guy. Like he was a super strong, absolutely electric and attractive, dynamic performer. Yeah, there was nobody like him at the time, and he did very much once he got the HR Geiger uh, mic stand. Yeah, and, mic stand. Uh, they started inviting Skrillex to come jam with them, and it turned into a caricature of itself, but that was long after we stopped listening. At this time, there was nothing that felt more genuine and authentic than Korn and what they were doing. Absolutely. Let's move down the album. This is going to start to get a little dark. The next song in the album is called Ball Tongue. How deep is the helmet influence on this one? I listen to Ball Tongue and all I can hear is like the crunchy guitar of uh, Helmet's Meantime. I wonder. I don't know if I've ever heard them talk about Helmet as an influence before. I have to dig it. I looked and I couldn't find anything, but and I've, I just wrote it throughout here. It's like you just hear so much of that Helmet. Yeah, it's that syncopated start-stop single chord, you know, verse. But it goes hard, like right out of the gate. And uh, what strikes me the most, uh, and this is where I think you find the corn sound. So Fieldy's bass is this unique new element that's different to heavy music and it's it's so high up in the mix and like this is back when everybody had like subwoofers in their car so like corn was the only like rock album that like would bust your subwoofers like you're listening to hip-hop yeah this album um, was made for like the tricked out acura like in in the mall parking lot right so fieldy he he slaps the bass a lot but it's not like funk music it's like no one's ever heard anybody play the bass like this head and monkey are playing these creepy slide notes and jonathan is doing some kind of talk singing uh yeah <laughs> that we're gonna i'm gonna really break down in a little bit <laughs> the guitars on this have you ever do you remember those motion activated ghosts that they would sell yeah, the dolly yeah <laughs> that's what the, that's all the guitars sound like <laughs> You're exactly right. When they're not like ripping your face off with power cords. True. So Jonathan's talking about someone that he knows that he really clearly doesn't like very much anymore in these lyrics. When the chorus kicks in, I think that's when we absolutely realize how different this band is, how different this singer is. So Head shouts ball tongue and we're all like, what's a ball tongue? Yeah. Jonathan Davis is spitting out this animalistic, deranged word salad in a staccato shout. The lyrics are insane, and I guess he, he, I didn't even know he was he was using real words here. No. Now that I'm reading them, though, you got the dykes off. I think they'll mind me. I'm a vagabond. We are justified. Congrats, you just fucked up my makeup and shit. What have you done for me? And I'm like... Huh. What is going on? So... About three quarters of the way through this, he does the new metal rap that we've spoken about in the past. Except he isn't rhyming anything. He's just just repeating, how can you fucking doubt me, but not again, <laughs> in kind of a rap cadence, right? You see this for the duration of new metal. Like they establish that as a musical thing that other bands are gonna are gonna ape. But other bands don't know why they're doing it. Kevin, do you know why Jonathan Davis is doing it? Why is Jonathan Davis doing that? Because Jonathan Davis is addicted to crystal meth. <laughs> During the recording of this album, the whole band was on meth. So I don't know if you've ever been around anybody when they're tweaking, but Jonathan, he's like, I call it the meth scat. <laughs> <laughs> so every once in a while, he just goes into this weird scat, but he's saying words. But like, 
in the last chorus in this one, it gets even more fucked up. Jonathan starts screaming about a psycho monkey in this demon voice. He goes, they've jacking themselves off to me. And I'm like, what? And then he goes into singing about someone named Begone being dead at the Technodrome. And then he calls the target of the song a dyke. So like, that's when now to my 38 year old brain, I know that he was extremely methed out. And Jonathan Davis, uh, the whole band has gone on record talking about this. So Jonathan Davis told Rolling Stone, quote, I went to my dealer and got a big old fat rock of meth, chopped that shit up and did vocals. Huh. Well, yeah. I mean, that kind of makes you rethink the campaign meth not even once. Like meth <laughs> maybe for, I don't know, three, 14 songs ish. <laughs> So uh, Brian Head Welch, the lead guitar player of Korn, wrote a book called Save Me From Myself. Uh, he explained that Baltong was the nickname of the owner of a practice space called the Underground Chicken Sound. It was Korn's practice space. Later, he became their tour manager, but they fired him. But when they were doing drugs together, because, again, these are all a bunch of meth heads in Bakersfield. Mm. Um, sometimes they'd get so tweaked out that Baltong couldn't talk no matter how he tried. He would just sit there with his mouth open, tongue sticking out, and the tongue looked like it had a little ball at the end. And that's where Baltong came from. That's awful. Yeah. It's it, and we're going to we're going to repeat this theme as we, we go down this album, because like now that I know that they were just all on meth, it's a different album. Um, and, and let's Nick, let's not discount just how big an alcoholic each and every person in that band was. That's true, too. You know, it's not just meth that really makes this album a classic. It is just untold suitcases of Bud Light that are being consumed. If the music that was created in the 60s and 70s, you know, they were all doing acid and, you know, Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, right? And then that moved into the 80s and everybody was doing blow like crazy. <laughs> you moved into grunge and they're all sticking needles in their arms and doing heroin. Every generation has a jug that creates their art. And how fitting is it that millennials got meth and Bud Light? <laughs> I have a tie into last week's episode. Mm. So this song was originally performed by Davis's previous band, Sex Art. And so was Blind, to a certain extent, and uh, some other ones on here, but they were all changed. But Orgy's guitar player, Ryan Shuck, was in Sex Art. And Ryan Shuck has a songwriting credit on Baltung, um, but that was added years after the original release. Like, he wasn't credited when the album first came out. Wow, really? Hey, could you imagine having to fight for a, ly for a lyrical credit on Baltung? <laughs> All right, so the next uh, song on Korn is Need To. So Korn has kind of a signature grind, like this sound that they make, uh, and they come out of the gates with it. So the Korn sound is the way that their seven-string guitars, which we didn't talk about earlier. Korn mm. was... Seven-string guitars were originally built for, like, guitar hero hair metal shredders uh, to give them a little bit more range to shred on. And the guys in Korn somehow got a hand of these older Ibanez seven-strings, and they're like, dude... We can just go low as shit and down tune these things and it's going to sound super heavy. And then everybody started doing it. But it's kind of neat that these guys found an instrument that was for a different genre of music and then just applied it to their own. So anyway, seven string guitars, that subsonic bass that Field is using, and the kick drum. And when they hit like a downstroke on like a big chord, all of those things hit at the same time. So like 
that's the grind. It's it's somehow in that while Fieldy's bass is somehow clicking and popping, while the drums and the guitars just churn, and then Jonathan does whatever he does over the top, and that's the corn sound. Yeah, Jonathan Davis on this song is bringing a vocal style that is just insane. But lyrically, this is the gold standard of new metal. Oh, absolutely. The co- the chorus is "I hate you." You can't get more new metal than this. So it starts off with, I am confused fighting myself and then goes into outside. I know you, but inside I'm fucked. And it sets up the trope for all of it. Yeah. And and it jumps very quickly into the second new metal lyrical trope misogyny. Mm. So Davis says that the song is about how he always felt used in relationships. So as I'm getting close to women, I push him away. And he does that in this song by calling her both a bitch and a slut. These are kids, like in the way that you think of, you know, a 23-year-old at a bar who might have a meth problem also just happens to be really, really talented musically and is given a platform in an age where a platform is a very hard thing to come by. The sh- kind of shit they're going to say is going to be gross. Well, I think about, I mean, now we hear it brought up as locker room talk as an excuse, right? But like, I can remember conversations that I had when I was 20 that I would, I'm just abhor- abhorred that I, I said those things, you know, like um, even misogynistic things that I didn't realize were misogynistic, you know, and like. I think that if you're the same person at 38 that you are at 22, Ugh. then you're probably still listening to corn, I guess. Yeah. And not and not for uh, educational purposes, not for podcast right. related purposes. Absolutely. I can't imagine right now still being in the public eye like Jonathan Davis. I, I'd imagine a lot of these songs have been retired, but the ones that mm-hmm. haven't, the ones that are undeniable bangers that might have some of that really just terrible content in them and having to go out there and still do that and not be able to move past that. That's what happens when your first album's a classic. Right, and, and it, it's just wild to me that like, the the label was like, yep, approved. <laughs> like, did this, was there a lyric book? Did, did the liner notes have the lyrics on this album? You know, I don't know because I've only owned this album from a burned cassette. You can probably still hear the intro to Today by Smashing Pumpkins. I was like, fuck this shit. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of that, like listening to it so many years later, technology as far as as, like high end audio headphones and speakers and stuff is much more easily achieved now. Mm -hmm. Like you can go get a great pair of headphones for a hundred bucks, right? Back then you couldn't. You know, so like I was listening to this on a boombox with two like eight inch speakers. So what? And and then I guess by the time I like was driving, I was listening to Follow the Leader more, I suppose, than this album. Mm-hmm. But like I heard so much from a production standpoint in my headphones while listening to this over and over again that I never heard before. Like there's little like there's a lot of drum machine hits, like these deep bass 808 hits that I never heard before. There's a lot of background vocals moving from the right side to the left side and back yeah, and forth. Like yeah. like it's it's a really interesting listen and I think Ross Rob- Robinson had a lot of fun probably while he was doing it, but it was kind of cool to go back and hear things that I didn't hear before. Unfortunately, that included a lot of slurs and <laughs> words that probably shouldn't be there. Uh, what do we got next? Clown? Yeah, so Clown's a banger. <laughs> 26 years later, I still hate this intro. I still can't oh, stand it. Yeah, yeah. So the intro, um, so they have like this hip hop influence, right? And part of like classic hip hop is like skits. And I feel like they tried, like, Ross Robinson would let the tape recorder run 
and just capture these guys talking. So like the this album starts with the band arguing about if this this song is going to start recording with a click track. For those that don't know what a click track is, when a band is in the studio in your headphones, you literally hear beep 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 and it sets the tempo of the song so that all the other band members know when to come in on their parts um and you, you know so you're just lined up so like he goes to hit record and then nobody plays because they're trying to argue about where the click is yeah and they kept it in i guess they thought that it was just so funny what i do find kind of hilarious is an angry jonathan davis in real life versus an angry jonathan davis on album Go back and listen to the beginning of Blind when he gives you that, are you ready? Now listen to him go, let's fucking do it, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) You're totally right. (laughs) I will say, though, even though I hate this intro, does this have the first breakdown ever as we understand it in the metalcore sense? I think it might. I think death metal did it first. But... Actually, though, that's going to bring up a really quick point. I couldn't find it, but I know I read an interview back then with, I think, Monkey in Guitar World magazine, where they were talking about their influences, and he specifically said, we were listening to a lot of death metal, and we didn't want to play at those tempos. Um, But when they would have these breakdown parts, and it would get slower, and like we thought, what if we made whole songs that were just like that part? Mm. Yeah, there was, um, especially in Clown, and I don't have, I wish I could find something that said, we listen to a lot of Helmet, or we listen to a lot of Vision and Disorder, because this song especially really feels a lot sonically like uh, songs off the album Imprint by Vision and Disorder, which also came out that year, Uh, and it just feels like they're kind of mirroring what the other's doing, but again, this is all conjecture. So uh, the track's pretty brutal. I remember identifying with this song a lot as a kid. Um, it's the first corn song about being bullied. Mm. Um, so we got into that a little bit earlier, that John Davis was a skinny little goth kid with Robert Smith makeup. So this song is about the time that uh, some... I've, I've heard it reported as a skinhead in some places, and I've just heard it recorded as a guy. So I'm going to go by... Um, from the book Corn, Life in the Pit, Jonathan Davis. Hey, man, I want to cite my sources. From the book Corn, Life in the Pit, Jonathan Davis's explanation was, the guy was from San Diego. He took a swing at me. He's all, fuck you, go back to Bakersfield. Well, I didn't understand that, so I bet down and he tried to swing at me, and our road manager, Jeff, knocked his ass out. And that song is Clown. Huh. Well, that's a, it's a song about another dude knocking a dude out. It is the whole song. That's it. That the part of the bridge where he goes, "Clown, you ain't shit. Turn around and get your face split." It's pretty badass. <laughs> I, I, I got to say, uh, as a former uh, getting bullied in high school alumni, yeah, this song, this song just clicked with me. It was, it was yeah, one of those immediately. All right, let's go uh, talk about Divine. Yes. So the first thing that I find interesting about Divine is in the research for this, I found out that Robert Trujillo was involved in writing this track. For those who don't know who Robert Trujillo is, he was Ozzy Osbourne's bass player, and Ozzy and Metallica switched bass players at some point. Like, they just did a trade like it was a, a, a sporting transaction. Uh, Jason Newstead went to, uh, to Ozzy, and Robert Trujillo went to Metallica. So he's currently the bass player in Metallica. But a couple years ago, Fieldy couldn't go out on a tour, and Korn took Robert Trujillo's 12-year-old kid out to play bass on that tour. Like, father of the year, right? Hey, just uh, just don't let him do any meth, okay? 
Also, before um, he was in Ozzy or Metallica, he was the bassist for Suicidal Tendencies. Yeah, I don't know how I left yeah, that out. West Coast royalty. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, you want that's a guy you want in your corner, especially if you're in Bakersfield. Uh, to have him co-sign and to have him work on any of your music is going to be huge. The first thing I noticed about D- uh, Divine kind of sounds like Primus. It sounds like a new metal hoedown. I hate it. Um, but, oh my God, the end of this... Uh, the end of this song, and I feel like with a lot of these songs, it takes a little bit of work to get through the first half, and then by the end, they are just walloping you over the Dude, head. Dude, oh, it's, it's when, I'm telling you, it's when the bridge kicks in. Like, sometimes the verses get a little repetitive, but all of a sudden he comes in with that, fuck you, I'm fed up with you, I'm not as good as you, fuck no one better than you, and then he just ramps it up until he's screaming it, and I'm like driving my car off the road. <laughs> it gets you so amped. It just gets you, like, ready to fight something yeah and this is why i mean they enabled new metal to exist because other people that felt this way i mean people like us i mean i was in a new metal band mm-hmm. although i thought that we were a little more intelligent but then no. i went back and listened and we weren't maybe you've heard the theme song to our show <laughs> we'll talk about that later yeah. i think people were like hey like i can write about this stuff i feel that way too you know like why don't girls like me? Like, this is like incel rock before that existed. Um, yeah, this... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, no, because they know they aren't nice guys. No, man, I was reading... While I was researching this, Head was talking about... Now, meanwhile, this guy, uh, like, realized that he was a horrible human being and, like, converted to Christianity and, like, went and built wells in Africa for a while and quit the band. But he's talking about, like, yeah, so my girlfriend's eight, eight months pregnant and, like, I gotta go on the road. So she's, like living at a friend's house and like out of a car, but then our car got broken into and stuff got stolen. And I'm like, man, do we got to give this baby up or what? And then like three paragraphs later, he's like, oh, we gave the baby away, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I miss you little, what's your name? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh. I would love to keep talking about Divine so that we don't have to go to the next song. Uh, I don't know how to cover this. All right, so we're going to get this out of the way. The next song is, I'm not going to say it. We made a conversation earlier and we decided that we're not going to use the word, even though he spelled the word wrong. It is a slur against gay people that starts with the letter F. So we're, if we say the F word while we're talking about this song, we're talking about a word that we just rather not say. Yeah. And if you're super interested or just super dense and don't get it, go to Spotify, type in corn by corn and just go to track six. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, let's just call it track six for the duration of this. Yeah, I like that. I will say that this is about as pro-gay as a rock song could get in 1994. 100%. So much. This was about like as close to being an ally as you could get in the hard rock or metal scene in 1994. Totally. It's it's the opposite of tough guy posture. Yeah. Uh, and as someone who often got called that word a lot... Mm-hmm. I get it. Like, I identified super hard with this song. Dude, I remember visiting my hometown when I was in college, and I met uh, a couple friends at, like, the local watering hole um, that I never hung out in because I moved out of that shithole before I was 21. But I walked in, and I was wearing black, like usual, and some guy in a camo hat just muttered that slur under his breath as I walked in. Like, I got teased in high school for wearing black a lot. I remember this one jock would pick on me all the time. And one day he was like, hey, Shelton, whose funeral are you going to? And I just looked at him and I said, don't know. Maybe yours. And then that ended that situation. <laughs> so I, I related to this song a lot is what I'm saying. 
the thing that always comes to mind for me is in high school, and again, this is a super redneck high school, I've been ripped out of kind of my mixed income, mixed race uh, neighborhood in Indiana and moved to Davie County, North Carolina. And I remember standing there at lunch and this kid who was shorter than me in a 10-gallon cowboy hat, he looked like a fucking cartoon character, <laughs> came and goes, you got a staring problem, boy? And I was like, uh, no. He goes, I, out of nowhere, dude, I never seen this kid before in my life. He just goes, I ain't gonna suck your dick. And I was like, okay. And then he just goes, and if I catch you staring at me again, I'm gonna kick your ass. And I was like, yes, okay. Turns out later on, that kid died in a car wreck. Fuck him. Life finds a way. <laughs> Yay! Um, so uh, an article in the Los Angeles Times quotes Jonathan Davis talking about this song. And he says, quote, there's a big rumor about me being a homosexual. Does it really matter? I have lots of gay friends. It shouldn't matter. I was in the new romantic scene in high school with Duran Duran wearing makeup. I got called up slur by the jocks. Couldn't walk through the halls without hearing that or being picked on. Hey, track six. <laughs> I got called the track six so much. <laughs> So uh, this is definitely a song written by somebody in their early 20s. There's a, there is a lot of juvenile humor hidden in this album. And I can relate to this next part so hard because I had friends that had nicknames. They were wholly inappropriate. And only a 21-year-old kid in the suburbs is going to think of. But Jonathan Davis's nickname when he joined Korn was HIV. Because he, you're so skinny that you probably have AIDS. Which is horrible and not funny. No. But... To them at that time, that was their idea of humor, right? So I never heard this. Again, this is a headphones thing. But while he breaks into the chorus of this song, he shouts HIV at the beginning of the chorus. I just learned that in researching this. I yeah. always thought it was like a just a primordial, like angry, like, you know, him like screaming through his teeth. Yeah. It turns out he's just screaming the name he was taunted with. Right. Which is great. And he has that tattooed on him. He does. Tattooed on his arm. Again, though, it's another song with a slamming bridge, right? Oh. He puts it all out there, and he's basically yelling about being called this by the this slur by people that, and he's 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 just so bothered that they're picking on him by this that at the end of it, he builds up and he builds up and he finally busts out. Well, you can suck my dick and like it. I don't know about you. I got such a kick out of playing that song and especially that part as loud as I could. Dude, we, we used to like pause, pause that it. part and then we drive by the shopping center and hit play out the car window. <laughs> I did the same exact thing. I did the same thing. I was like, okay, wait, 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 pause it, pause it, pause it. And then like windows down at the shopping center. Oh, wow. I'm glad I'm not alone on that. Go listen to track six. You'll hear the part we're talking about. It, it still kind of rocks because it's, it's him saying like, I'm not gay. I don't care if you think I'm gay, but you know what? Suck it. <laughs> <laughs> but he immediately after that moment of empowerment does a meth scat like a bad one he goes into this whole he had my gun but he had a body mighty and he say he had my gun but he had a body mighty and he to say he had my gun but he had a body mighty and he say it's like what he had my gun but he had a body mighty and he say and he say is not a word he doesn't say any way he says any like so when he meth scats he's literally going off the top of the dome because probably and I can relate to this a little bit 
when your band's putting a song together and you're trying to write the vocals, sometimes you write a pattern before you write words or a melody and you sing nonsense. And I think he got into the studio and he's like, oh shit, I don't have words for any of this. And then meth brain took over. Yeah, it's like, uh, I don't have lyrics, but I got this meth. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Uh, and what happens is track six. Yep. Next down the line, uh, this was, the, I believe, the second single, right? Or was it the, yeah, it was the second, it's the only other video on the album. And that is Shoots and Ladders. Deep. Deep song. Uh, yeah, so Shoots and Ladders opens up with bagpipes. And like the first time we all heard, wait, Jonathan Davis plays the bagpipes? That's so weird. Jonathan Davis was like a 23-year-old like mortician slash funeral director that quit his job to go on on corn. And when in his life did he learn how to play the bagpipes? Like who tends your kid on bagpipe lessons? Welcome to Bakersfield. Here's your meth and here's your bagpipes. But, and but his but his dad owned a recording studio and a record store. Um, the old country singer Buck Owens, Jonathan Davis's dad, rented that studio, and now Jonathan Davis owns that studio. I don't know what it's called, but like, so music was in the family. I just don't know, like, at what point was he like, Dad, I want to learn the bagpipes. The only practical reason to learn the bagpipes is like if you're going to a cop's funeral. <laughs> God. Oh, Officer Michael McBludgeon served 30, 40 years proudly for the Boston Police Department. Play him off, Jonathan. Play him into the light. <laughs> oh, Jonathan. Can you imagine seeing this shit live for the first time? These guys are playing large clubs. Nobody knows who they are. They're opening for Megadeth, and this skinny meth head with dreadlocks and a kilt comes out and starts playing bagpipes. <laughs> like, Jaws had to hit the floor. Dude. I will, I will tell you when I saw Korn, they did this thing, like they went through, they only have a combined 24 songs at this point and they would do about six of them. And then I think at track seven, everything would go dark and there would be like yeah. the only costume change and you would come out in the kilt with like the glitter uh -huh. on, like the Adidas kilt. People lost their shit. If you, Dude, yeah, he's doing the weird thing. <laughs> if you ever wanted to see a bunch of just like New metal kids in North Carolina go crazy for a man playing bagpipes. <laughs> oh, to be alive in 1996. <laughs> right? But that's why they were so cool, man. Like, I wanted to like heavy music and it felt so cheesy, but corn was just new and raw and weird and like it, it was just perfect timed perfectly timed yeah if you don't know all the lyrics to this song in the verses are just nursery rhymes so like corn's doing the corn grind jonathan's going like ring around the rosy and then in the background he's meth scatting all over the place <laughs> to figure out what anybody was talking about on these albums back in the day you had about three sources you could go and spend money at a Barnes & Noble on a Metal Hammer magazine that had an interview with Korn and hope they talked about it. You could go to somebody's uh, GeoCities page and hope that that was a uh, trusted source. Or you could go to songmeanings.com where Bluntmaster420 tells you the true meaning behind a song. That was about it. I didn't really figure it out until now that he's basically just saying, Hey, you know, nursery rhymes back in the day were about some dark shit. That's it. Yep. That's, that's I got a direct quote. So as you mentioned, Kevin, I found a website that's basically GeoCities, but it has a direct quote. 
uh, from Jonathan on here, and he said, it was written because all these little kids sing these nursery rhymes, and they don't know what they originally meant. Everyone's so happy when they're singing Ring Around the Rosie, but it's about the Black Plague. All of them have these evil stories behind them. So there you go. As we're, we're recording this from uh, hopefully the end of a, a quarantine. N- nursery rhymes that are real playful can come from like a just a really dark place. And then songs like Ball Tongue can come from really stupid places. <laughs> so so uh, this song got nominated for a Grammy in 1997. Can you imagine being another metal artist and being like, wait, I've been writing lyrics for 17 years and this guy sings Ring Around the Rosie and gets nominated for a Grammy? What a track six. (laughs) (laughs) So let's burn through the next three songs. Yes. The next two songs, because they're absolute filler. Uh, The next three songs are filler. So most bands on their first record have a bunch of garbage on it because they, at this time, like now you can just release a single. It doesn't matter anymore. But back then you had to release a full album. And like most of these bands, like the label wanted to get this shit out so they could start making money Mm -hmm. and get the band on the road. And they're like, dude, we only got six songs. So they go write a bunch of garbage. So the first song is called Predictable. The only notable thing in Predictable is we have the first go in new metal where he sends the band into a breakdown. Yeah, kind of a snoozer. It's probably my least favorite song on the album. Uh, I did write it's probably the weakest song on the album. I mean, the the, the lyrics are I'm going to try, I'm going to die, blah, blah. We get it. On to the next one. Um, The next one is called Fake. Uh, again, is more filler, um, but I did find one cool thing I wanted to talk about. So there's the continued uh, and cool use of some unique guitar effects pedals here, like swirly things and a lot of um, panning from the right ear to the left ear. Like metal bands didn't really use a lot of effects pedals before. You know, they turned on the distortion and they went and they used reverb on the clearing parts. So like I found an interview that uh, the producer, Ross Robinson, gave Rolling Stone magazine mm-hmm. where he said that the Indigo Ranch studio where they recorded, the owner had a big old box of 70s guitar pedals so that first corn album was the first metal album to really use guitar pedals huh and yeah i, I didn't know that but uh that's just kind of cool and, and that's just luck the studio they happened to go to had all this stuff and ross robinson just plugged it in yeah for this one fake it's okay and with lies also okay yeah yeah more filler um although both um Fake and Lies have like a death metal growl in that. I love that. I love, especially on Lies, that mm. slowed down guttural so, scream. Through the whole chorus. So that's um, yeah. that's head dropping this like, this and then Jonathan's over the top doing his meth nonsense. Yeah, I, I love that. Although I also wouldn't be surprised if it was head like burping and they just right. slowed it down. Right, because ultimately it's a bad song. Yeah. It's really not good. All right, let's get dark again. Helmet in the bush. Yeah, so the next two songs are the darkest points on this album, and not in terms of, like, being bad, but, like, the content matters. So Helmet in the Bush is one of the heaviest songs on the album, both lyrically and musically. It opens with this weird fake Latin accent skit that's too dumb to even discuss. Like, I don't even want to break it down. Yeah, yeah, no. Unless you had a good joke about I it. I sure don't. It's not okay. funny and doesn't need to be No, it, it, it doesn't need to be there. But once the song starts, it's this guitar chug on top of a drum machine. Yeah. And it just pummels, dude. It pummels. Yeah, I love that, like, just that the hi-hats and that 808. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, but the song itself is about Jonathan Davis begging God to help him quit doing meth. With lyrics like, I want to give it up, no, I can't escape, and please, God, don't let me give in tonight. Huh. 
So yeah. I found an article on uh, metalinjection.net from 1995 called <laughs> Corn Look Back on Riding Helmet in the Bush While High on Speed. A year ago. <laughs> again. <laughs> I, again, 1995. How did I not know until now that they were all on meth? I think I heard about them being on speed, but I don't think I knew that speed was meth. <laughs> so I got a couple quotes, um, and this is going to explain the gross song title, too. Um, Head is quoted as saying, we were rehearsing, getting ready to record our record, I believe, and we ended up doing some speed that night. Me, Jonathan, and Monkey, we stayed over in the studio that night, and we wrote that song. He had the lyrics right there. It was about calling out God to get us off meth. And that happened like 10 years later to me, so it was a trip. It was like a prediction. Um, as for the song title, as I said, it's kind of gross. John Davis said, Helmet in the Bush is about meth. It's about when you do meth and you look down at your dick and it's literally a helmet in the bush. <laughs> oh. And then uh, Fieldy elaborated and said, uh, basically, it's what happens when you do too much drugs and your girl want to get with you and you've got some man problems down below. Just another reason not to do drugs, children. So take a note from Corn. <laughs> Don't do math. Oh, I would love to watch that uh, after school special where they're just writing bangers and they're like, my dick looks funny and it don't work. <laughs> oh, God, we need, to, we need to stop doing this like 10 years from now. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Let's, let's, make, let's make a couple million dollars first, but uh, my dick's real weird. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe I'm laughing as I'm about to lead us into a song about the worst oh, of all do we possible have to? topics. Do we have to? Um, yes, although I sent, text to Kev, I sent a text to Kevin earlier today and I just said, I'm never listening to Daddy nope. ever again. As I listened to it for the purposes of this episode, I realized I think I only heard it once. Even as a kid listening to this album, I just stop and skip it after Helmet in the Bush. Yeah, the end. Uh, yeah, it's the longest song on the album. It's too long. Um, it's very tough to listen to. I'll get right to it. This song is about John Davis reflecting on getting molested by his babysitter and his claim that his parents didn't believe him. Um, so, like, dude is anguished, and he straight put it on wax. Mm -hmm. Like, the song opens with him singing in this sort of, like, Gregorian kind of, like, chant. Yeah, it's... Uh, and from what I read, all of this was done in one take. So what you're hearing is just what's happening. And... That's why it's a little bit more drawn out, why there are these pauses, why it is so unhinged. I mean, you can't go back in and edit that kind of feeling. Sure. And I mean, the lyrics are basically about how he hates this person for what they did to him and how they ruined his life. Um, and it goes on for a bit too long. It's not that great of a song. Mm -hmm. um, but the song ends with John Davis absolutely melting down in the vocal booth. I thought it was a gimmick, but he actually had a breakdown while he was recording this. And Ross Robinson, twisted genius that he is, he kept recording. And he literally, like, signaled the band to just make up a jam over the top. So Jonathan's, like, hyperventilating and swearing and screaming in this vocal booth. And like listening to it now is so haunting that it reminds me of recordings that I've heard of actual exorcisms. There's something like so absolutely haunting about hearing a recording of serious human suffering. And this is real. Like I thought it was a gimmick forever until I listened to it through grown up ears and you are hearing a person absolutely having a breakdown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even looking back on the other members reflecting on that album uh, and that song in particular, they don't really say a lot because what can you say? They just go, yeah, that was really heavy. And that was, they'll, they will talk about the process. Mm -hmm. They will talk about what they were doing, their role in it. 
and then they shut up. Yeah. And- they, uh, Jonathan wouldn't talk about it. Like people would always try to ask him to talk about it in interviews and he'd be like, no, nah, I don't want to talk about it. So they didn't play this song. Uh, for almost 20 years, they played it for the first time on March 13th, 2015 at the Brooklyn Bowl in Las Vegas. Shout out to my homie Chris that works there. After the band like runs out of stuff to improvise over the top, Jonathan Davis is still crying and in, in effect to make it even more haunting. Um, Ross Robinson's mom is this famous self-help speaker uh, and some lady from one of her workshops recorded her singing like this. She was singing like this lullaby kind of folk song. And uh, the producer of this record heard it and was like, hey, can you send me a tape of that? So that's like this lady that his mom knows singing this. But while she's singing this lullaby, you hear Jonathan start to like get a little composed. And then he chucks his headphones and you hear the door to the the vocal booth open and close as he walks out. It also imitated like... It caused other artists to imitate this kind of like emotional outburst extended track thing. And it made its way into other new metal albums. Um, we will discover the first Disturb album on this show. And I will eviscerate David Draymond's attempt <laughs> to do something similar on that album in the most highly embarrassing fashion. Oh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. And maybe it'll be our next milestone. We'll see. Um And then we get a bonus track, which if you could even call it that. Are you talking about Michael and Jerry? I am indeed. That's the weirdest goddamn thing. It is a uh, highly toxic relationship between uh, Michael and I'm assuming his wife, Jerry. Yes. And they, from what I can tell, own an auto garage and are working throughout the ins and outs of owning a business together. And they hate each other. Yeah. So Ross Robinson found this cassette tape in an abandoned house. Mm. And... When he listened to it, he found this brutal argument between this couple where he's just emotionally abusive. They're uh, talking about how to properly install an exhaust manifold on a Dodge Dart. God. <laughs> Who was... Re- I, I have to believe that Jerry was probably recording this yeah. because it was probably really hard to get a divorce back then. And you, I totally agree. And I think that she probably recorded this in order to have something to give the lawyers. Right, because he's being awful, and she keeps going, why are you swearing at me? Mm-hmm. And then she starts to lose her cool at the end, too. But it's uh, it's just a really dark way to end a really dark album. Yeah, and also um, a highly confusing way. Oh, yeah, especially when I was, like, 13 listening to it. Yes, what's it happening? I didn't understand. My, I never heard my parents fight like that, so, like, I had no reference point. But anyway, that's Corn Corn. We made it through. Um, if it's been a while since you've listened... Go listen to it, and then maybe come back to this episode. I I think that 50 to 60% of this album still stands. Um, I think it's a really sonically interesting experience. Um, I wish that some of the lyrics were different. I wish the jokes weren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that uh, track six had a different title. Yeah. it's It was definitely really, really fun to revisit this album, especially... Uh, with better sound quality that we just have in our day-to-day devices now. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's such a different sonic experience than I remember listening to on my crappy, like, $50 boombox that I had as a kid. But anyway, uh, let's wrap this up. Where are they now? Korn has gone on to do 12 studio releases after this one. They uh, are still together, but they lost David Silvera, the drummer, Head left for a while. He might be back. Fieldy has been out at times. So the only consistents have been Monkey and uh, 
Jonathan and then session musicians have fielded. All right. Well, this will not be the last time we talk about corn on this show. Um, but we did want to get to this album early on in this show, just so we could have a starting point, more or less. So in current new metal news, I'm going to keep coming back to this because I think it's funny. Uh, the lead singer of Trapped is just losing his mind on Twitter. Please go follow Trapped and, and play along. So he's got big boomer energy, and he's currently losing his mind about people watching video game streamers. So I'm going to read you two tweets. Anyone can play a video game as long as they know the correct buttons to push. They got Rock Band in case you can't play guitar for real. Playing an instrument and playing controller hooked up to a video game cannot even be compared. Same for sports. Play Madden. Don't watch others. First off, ain't nobody fucking playing Rock Band. Is this guy stuck 10 years ago when he was headstrong and gonna take on anyone? They don't make Rock Band anymore. No, not at all. And also, anybody can play a guitar if they know what frets and strings to push. Like, what the fuck is he talking about? And then, I think this phenomenon of people not playing video games but watching others play video games has shown how the younger generations in the U.S. have evolved to be total followers. It's why our country is generally allowing governors to impose house arrest on them. Total followers. This bro went from Twitch streamers to governors locking down in a public health crisis. You know, all these... Is he on meth? (laughs) Are all of these people on meth? I think so. (laughs) All these Red Rockers who are just like, it's unpatriotic and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, cool, bro. So where'd you you serve? Right. Oh, oh, no? Oh, okay. Right, this is your Rosie the Riveter moment. In order to serve your country, stay home. I don't want to stay home. I want to go to shows, but I'm going to stay home. And do this podcast. (laughs) Right. Oh, (laughs) God. All right, and uh, we'll wrap this one up. I got a, a couple. Well, first, let's go over uh, what you're listening to. What what have you been listening to lately? What I've been listening to lately, not an album per se, but the new two pack that Run the Jewels dropped, Ooh La La, and Yankee and the Brave have me so stoked for Run the Jewels four. And I think we're getting really close. They uh, just being a band that or a group that's able to completely control the output of their product and put it out whenever they feel like it could be tomorrow it, we could be recording this and they could have dropped it right now it could be a year from now but that two-pack whoo my god go check that out it is a banger sick i haven't had a chance yet so i'll do that today uh, i've been jamming a band called 68 uh founded by josh scogan from the chariot and norma jean uh really sick stuff Parts of it remind me of Nirvana. Parts of it remind me of Every Time I Die. It's just got this really high-energy rock and roll vibe, and uh, it's one of the coolest things I've heard. Check out their album, Two Parts Viper. Uh, Kevin and I will hopefully be able to see them in September at Furnace Fest in Birmingham. Awesome. Uh, I believe that is going to wrap it up for Corn by Corn. I I, I, want to bring up a point. Um, So... In doing the research for this podcast, (laughs) I've come across a book that we will be referencing at times. Uh, In case you want to play the home game, uh, hop on to Amazon and look for a copy of New Metal, The Next Generation of Rock and Punk by Joel McIver. Uh, I did post a picture of this on our Instagram. Um, It's written in, in the UK, so like they cover some bands that we never heard from here. Um, but it really captures a moment in time because some of these bands, like it'll link to their websites, but like, here's this band is called kill to this. And their website is www.angelfire.com slash D slash Sanders slash kill to this dot HTML. 
Um, but it's pretty funny. They break down like every new metal band they could think of. And, and some adds, that aren't new metal. And, and include like Puddle of Mud and At the Drive In. And like, anyway, we're going to use this book. Again, that is New Metal, The Next Generation of Rock and Punk by Joel McIver. Um, and then uh, wanted to talk about before we end the show uh, what we're going to cover in the next episode so that uh, we, as we cover some lesser known stuff, we want you, the listener, to have a more recent uh, viewpoint of that album. So, Kevin, you're running the show next week. What's it going to be? Uh, next episode, we are going to be covering the 1997 soundtrack to the motion picture classic Spawn. All right. You heard the man. Uh, it is available on uh, Spotify and in other streaming areas. So get on it. And in two weeks, uh, we're going to break down that baby. <laughs> um, oh, I can't wait. In the meantime, follow us on our social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at at Days of the New. As always, it's D-A-Y-Z of the New, N-U. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nick underscore the underscore knife. You can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at KJ Delory. That's D-E-L-U-R-Y. And I'm not on Twitter because it's going to kill us all in the end. Also, search for Days of the New Fan Discussion Board on Facebook. While I don't participate too much on Facebook, it was a nice surprise to see that uh, someone has created that discussion board. Yeah. Kevin and I both uh, jump in there and comment on your posts. So yeah. please uh, continue it there. Yeah, shout out to TJ for making that uh, happen. And thank you to all you guys who are participating in there uh we we need more we need more you guys absolutely and also you know drop us a line let us know what you want us to cover we already have a request for uh the first album by kitty so we'll definitely get that rolling uh and then uh do us a solid and uh head over to itunes and give us a five-star rating leave a positive comment that it really helps us move up the charts and lets other people find this podcast because there's a community of weirdos like us and we want to speak to them Thanks again. We'll see you in two weeks. And until then, it's just one of those days. Stop it!